Good morning. Super pumped to see you. Uh, go ahead. If you have a Bible, open it up to Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Um, so, if you noticed, it seems like, you know, some people have words that carry weight. Some people have words that carry authority. Other people have words that just are, I guess, innocuous is maybe the best word to describe them. And, you know, there, there are words that have power to shape our lives, our imaginations. And there are other words that just bounce off us into the stratosphere. So the question this morning is, whose words have weight in your life? Which words deserve to shape our lives? And so we are beginning this series, as Dave mentioned, called Red Letters. And we are looking at, uh, for the next few months, at this section in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus is teaching all kinds of things. And he's still on the way to Jerusalem and he's describing to his disciples what it looks like to be his follower, to be someone who embraces his kingdom. And it is mostly a section full of his words. So in a lot of your Bibles, it is a section full of words printed in red. There are the words of Jesus. Now, let me geek out for just a second and ask the question, like, are the red ones more important than the black ones? The answer would be, no, no, come on. This first service nailed it. Come on, guys. All right. So are the black ones less important? Do they carry less weight? Paul would say that all of Scripture is God-breathed. This is 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's all the breath of heaven. It's all God's self-disclosure. And so not one part is less important than another part. But why is it that Leviticus is just as valid as the Sermon on the Mount? ultimately because all of the letters printed in black are pointing to the person who spoke in red. He didn't speak in red, but it's printed in red, right? You got, you're with me? Are you with me? And so the Bible as a whole story is pointing us to our need for and the God's gift of the one whose words are recorded in red ink. And so today, in the next few weeks, we're going to look at Luke 15. Three of the most famous stories that Jesus has told. And we're going to look at how they mess with our lives and blow the paradigms uh, that we all probably come to the Bible with. And so today we're going to see why Jesus' words deserve so much weight. And it's because he's going to show us three things. Who are the people that are close to God? What's the wrong approach to God? And what's God's approach to us? So the first thing we learn from this passage by looking at the crowd, the crowd around Jesus that reveals the ones close to God. Take a look at the passage with me. Now, The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes, or the Torah experts, grumbled, saying, This man receives or welcomes sinners and eats with them. So this this section begins by describing two kinds of people around Jesus. The crowd has uh, two kinds of people. There are a group of people who are listening and a group of people who are grumbling. Okay? And... The people listening and the people grumbling are kind of shocking. Because who are the people who are being welcomed by Jesus? Who are the people who are enjoying a table fellowship, this food around the table, a snack with Jesus? It's the religious leaders that are now on the outside. It's the religious ones on the outside looking down on the ones being welcomed. That is the socially and spiritually despised people who are close to Jesus. So these, these sinner types, the, the, the tax collector and the sinner, these are the people who are publicly recognized as having failed to keep the Jewish standards of morality. Maybe it's through neglect, maybe it's through poor circumstances, or maybe it's just through open rebellion and destructive self-centeredness. But the point is that these people are known for their badness. They're known for their spiritual poverty. 
And so this tax collector, for example, is somebody who collaborated with the Roman Empire. They were despised because they were kind of like a pimp. They were somebody who basically exploited the vulnerable for their own advantage. Never a positive thing, right? And so let me put this in our context for a second. The tax collectors, the sinners, who are these people? The people at Jesus' table, the people enjoying his gracious and his warm fellowship are precisely those people who at your office brag about their weekend exploits. They are those folks who are on a first-name basis with the strippers down on Canyon Road. It's the strippers, the drunks, the meth heads, it's the cheats, it's the belligerent uncle whose life mission is to make the entire family uncomfortable at family gatherings. It's that drug dealer that's selling to middle schoolers. It's me when I'm impatiently judging that person who pulls out a checkbook at the grocery store (laughs) checkout line. Like, have we heard about debit cards? They're way faster. Anyway, um, anyway sorry. If that's you, I, it's cool. It's cool. I'm, I'm confessing my sin. I just, I'm impatient and I have issues. We're going to talk about them a little bit. So these are the people that are close to Jesus. It's that kind of crowd. Just so it's real for us. And so the people close to Jesus aren't just known for their badness, but Luke identifies them as the people drawing near to Jesus in order to hear him. And this is an interesting word pair. The the words for uh, nearness and listening are a word pair that are used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it's an echo of the Old Testament role Israel was supposed to play. They were to be the community that heard and obeyed Yahweh and lived in proximity to him. In fact, the verse immediately preceding this story is Jesus' challenge to Israel. He, He finishes his teaching with the words, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear, let them hear. And then Luke picks up the next story. Tax collectors and sinners were gathering near Jesus to listen to him. Who are the people who are hearing? It's the people who recognize their need. The people who recognize their own badness. And they sense in Jesus the grace to be accepted and the grace to be transformed. And by the way, with Jesus, it's grace for both. It's always both. It's grace that accepts and it's grace that transforms. It's never one without the other. There's always both going on. And so the crowd around Jesus is is important because it shows us that God is close to people who will hear Jesus' words. It implies trust and obedience in the Old Testament, this word hearing. And so the question for us this morning is, who are you listening to? Who has weight in your life? Is Jesus just kind of an independent contractor? I'd like you to give me advice on my backsplash, but I'd like you to not talk to me about the rest of my life. Or is he somebody who his words have are the words of life and you want him to speak to all of your life? Who is he today to you? I can't help but wondering, too, as I read this passage, as I look at the people around Jesus, I can't help but ask the question, if the community around Jesus and the Gospels were folks like these who were outwardly very messed up, then why are the people in church so often just the people who are only inwardly messed up? And let me put it simply or another way. If sinners aren't gathering around us, then we're not resembling Jesus. We're not resembling him. So they gathered to him. They they wanted to hear him. They wanted to eat with him. But frequently, church people are the last people on the planet who regularly have fellowship with those whose lives are very outwardly messed up. 
the sinners and the tax collectors that we've just described. And here's why. Here's my working theory. I think it's because we have mistaken the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, for a religious system kind of about Jesus. And we settle for the wrong approach, which brings me to the next point, which is this. We see in verse 2 the complaint, the complaint that reveals the wrong approach to God. Uh, it says that the Pharisees and the scribes, or the teachers of the law, grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So the first group, the tax collectors, the sinners, they reveal who's near to God because they're coming to listen But the second group shows us the wrong approach to God because it's their complaint that incites Jesus to tell these three stories in Luke 15 that will ultimately critique their way of thinking about God and themselves. This group is the Pharisees, the teachers of the Torah. Let me tell you a little bit about the Pharisees. They're what I like to call spiritually middle class. In other words, they think they have something to offer. They think they've earned something. They've got their own little spiritual nest egg that they've saved up and they hope will justify them in the end. And so their hope was to reform Israel. Remember that these guys lived under Roman oppression. And so they they lived in a story where they knew God was supposed to reign from Jerusalem. They were supposed to be um, independent from the, the, the corrupt, idolatrous nations around them. So they lived under Roman oppression, and they dealt with it. Israel dealt with it in a few different ways. There are a few different factions or camps people split off into. There was a group of people who said, let's just retreat from the world. It's so messed up. The only way it's going to get right is if God just does something cataclysmic. And so they retreated to the caves of Qumran. This is a group called the Essenes. There are others who said, let's pray our prayers and sharpen our swords. And they were the political revolutionaries of the day. They were zealots. Others said, let's just make friends with the powers. And these people were the Sadducees. They were willing to give up their beliefs in order to be friends with Rome. They were the the liberals of their day. Then Pharisees, they were more like the religious middle. They clung to their beliefs in Torah, and they hoped that their effort and their purity would bring about the end of exile and the salvation of Israel. Of course, this is a system that is a self-salvation system. It's essentially moralistic. If I perform the right way, God owes me. If we do the right things, God will bless us. And God will reject anyone whose performance isn't up to standard. In other words, this is a very moralistic system. And it's evidenced by their complaint. They say, this man welcomes sinners and he even eats with them. So Jesus is he's dining with these people. And in their culture, dining with people is a symbolic way of saying, I want fellowship with you, identify with you. I, we have communion together. And so this word that Luke uses to describe the heart of the Pharisees is scathing. In the NIV, it's just muttered. In the ESV, it's grumbled, which is more literal. Uh, they're grumbling against Jesus, which is the... Uh, Septuagint or Greek translation of the Old Testament that is the word used to describe Israel in the wilderness God frees them from slavery in Egypt and they're wandering in the wilderness and they're saying God we wish we had more water we wish we had more meat we wish we were slaves again right it would be better for us to go back to Egypt they grumbled which was evidence of their lack of trust in Yahweh so how do you know you're a Pharisee well you know you're a Pharisee when uh, you have this moralistic approach to God, and you know you have a moralistic approach to God when you see him blessing someone else, and you say to yourself, why her? And you say to yourself, hey, how, how come she got the promotion? 
How come he gets the vacation home? Right? I, I, I deserve to be picked for the team. I've worked hard. I've done my part. I've kept my nose clean. I did what I was supposed to do. Why aren't I getting what I deserve? And so when we compare ourselves and when we become envious, there's this little inner Pharisee controlling the emotions of our lives. Kind of like that, that Pixar movie that I can't think of the name of. Inside Out. Thanks a lot. There we go. Right? And so it's, it's not anger or joy. It's a Pharisee that's calling the shots. Right? And so there's this moralistic approach to God under the surface of all of our right church answers. We've got the right church answers, but the system that's driving it is moralistic. The reason for most of our problems with God is simply that we don't believe the gospel. Instead, we are looking at God through a Pharisee lens. And this will, this will absolutely sink you if this is your paradigm. Because there's only two spiritual options underneath a moralistic spiritual paradigm. You either become very puffed up and prideful because of your great performance, and then you become embittered when you don't get what you want. Or, and, and by the way, if you're the puffed up pride person, nobody likes you. And, or you become very despondent and you become defeated over your very poor per- performance. And now you don't like you. So this is a very like unhappy way to live. Uh, you, you won't be able to bear criticism because you have too much at stake to defend. Because everything that you're doing justifies you. And all of your goodness is what you lean on. And so when you're criticized, you can't handle it. So you blame someone else or you run from it. Or you won't be able to handle suffering if you're living under this paradigm because God owes you better. So something's wrong. This is Job's friends. If you read Job, they're all, you've obviously done something wrong. And we know as the readers of Job that that's not true. He's actually a righteous guy. Now, some of you, I'm sorry, you're realizing which characters you are in this story. It's disappointing, isn't it? Like you didn't think you were going to come here. You thought, oh, here's something about sin in the gospel. But now, shoot, I'm a Pharisee? I didn't think this was going to happen to me this morning. It's disappointing, I know. It's okay, you'll have a chance to repent of that today. Right? It's because church people have a tendency to hide their wrong approach to God until stress and pressure start to squeeze it out. Right? We have the right answers. Right? We know the right things, and so we think, like, well, I know that stuff, and therefore I must be fine. We assent to the right things, but when that stress and that pressure starts to squeeze out what Pharisees, uh, how Pharisees really feel about the world, it's out there for all of us to see, and we're like, yeah, that's, that's moralism that's coming out of you. But here's the good news. Once you see it, you're free. You're actually liberated, right? Because now you can actually move in the right direction spiritually. You couldn't do it before because you didn't see what was really going on underneath. And so the reason many of us don't have sinners and tax collectors over for dinner regularly, the reason we don't have a sinner crowd around us, if you don't have a sinner crowd around you, uh, is that you've bought into the myth of moralistic community. Some of you have a sinner crowd around you and like that's because they're dragging you down. Others of you have a sinner crowd around you because you're trying to call them to Jesus. So we need to talk about both of those options. But today, I want to talk about the reality that some of us as, as church people just don't have sinners gathering around you because you've bought into the wrong myth. And it works like this. This is how moralistic community works. It works like this. You, you, you build the foundation of your relationship on agreements. See, Since your own personal acceptance from God comes from your performance and your agreements, you treat other people out of the same way you feel you're treated by God. And so you build the foundation of the relationship around, will you agree with me and will you perform in a way that I deem acceptable? 
right? And then evangelicals tend to be more about agreements than performance anyway, right? So as long as you agree with me. If you agree with me about kind of whatever theologically, if you agree with me about how to raise kids, if you agree with... We build our relationships on agreements. Agreements over all kinds of silly things. External things, church things. Agreements over how loud the drums should be. Right? In church. (laughs) Only then can I have a relationship with you. And so that's the foundation. And then it moves on. And if I agree with you, if you agree with me, then I can respect you. And if I can respect you, then I will finally accept you. And what I will do is I will begin a relationship with you that maintains our agreements. And once it stops doing that, I'm out. Does this sound familiar to any of you? Some of you are going, shoot, it's too familiar. It's okay, let's look at the way Jesus does community. Look at a gospel community, it runs the opposite direction. Jesus does the opposite in this text, right? We see him doing the very opposite thing. What's he doing? He gathers people around him who don't agree with him. I mean, how can they? He simply accepts them in their state. He accepts them where they are. He dines with them. He identifies with them. And I mean, this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, 8. He says uh, that while we were sinners, he died for us. This is, this is a, that is running the opposite direction from God. He still dies for us. It's without performance. And he respects them as people made in God's image. He's there at the table with them eye to eye. You're a person. You're broken by sin. I can still respect you. And then on the other side of that gracious acceptance and, and respect, he looks for points of contact. He looks for agreement. They dine first. And as they do, they have space to hear him. But after, they experience the grace of his fellowship. Only in his unearned acceptance of them can they begin to truly hear how their lives can be different and be remade in his kingdom. See, the ones who hear will be rescued. But do you see the way he does relationships? It's, it's counter to the moralists. Are you with me? Okay. So when we approach people this way, when we, when we approach them in a way that says, I, I'll just accept you as a person made in God's image. I'll respect your story because it's a story that you deserve respect as a person. I'll look for points of contact on the other side of that. We'll begin resembling Jesus. And sinners will want to dine with you. And moralists won't. Right? It's a good thing if moralists quit wanting to eat with you. Because you're moving in the right direction. You'll confound them too much. So, I would suggest that overwhelming amounts of Christians don't make dining with sinners a practice because they have the moralist approach to God and others as their paradigm for relationships instead of the gospel. And so, the, the sinners we're around rightly reject religious moralism. They think they're rejecting Jesus, but a lot of times they're just rejecting moralism. But let's be the kind of church that offers contact with Jesus because we dine with sinners and let them reject him after they know we reject moralism too. Right? If you want to reject Jesus, okay. But just make sure you know that I'm rejecting the same moralism you're rejecting. And maybe they'll be like you. They'll find the grace of Jesus to be compelling, more compelling than any other narrative. Uh, one, one of the things I'll often say in a conversation with somebody who, you know, they find out, oh, you're a pastor. I need you to know that I don't believe in God. One of the first things I say is, well, that's, that's okay. Which God is it that you don't believe in? Because there's a good chance I disbelieve in that God too. And I talk to you about Jesus. <laughs> like, which, which one is it that you don't believe in? It brings us to our next section. Right? So, so if this is gospel community, right, how, how is it then that, 
that Jesus addresses the Pharisees. Look at, look at the text with me. This is the challenge that Jesus offers that reveals God's approach to us. So if the Pharisees have the wrong approach to God, what does Jesus say about God's approach to us? Verse 3. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance." Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So, If moralism is a flawed approach to God, what does this story have to say uh, uh, about how Jesus approaches us? Remember, first of all, that Jesus is addressing Pharisees. And this is, again, a parable aimed at their worldview. And he begins the challenge. He says, suppose one of you, or who among you, this is a note of genius, by the way. Look what Jesus is doing. See, one of the best ways to be challenged by Jesus and for him to blow your paradigms and, and to change you is to get yourself inside his stories. You need to get the stories inside you, but ultimately you've got to get yourself inside the stories to take on their viewpoints, to try on what he's saying. In other words, we need to read the scripture a little bit more slowly and to let it capture our imagination. Not, not to speculate, but to let the scriptures get a hold of us. And so once inside the story, three distinct realities appear. We need to see each one of them. Three distinct realities from the story of the lost sheep and the lost coin. And next week, Dave will talk to you about the two lost sons. But each one of these realities shows us God's approach to us. So you have to see three things. First, you have to see our lostness. Our lostness. Have you ever really been lost? I mean, like, really good and directionally lost. Um, so here's the deal. If you are under 30, there is a good chance that you've never been lost because there's an app for that. Right? Um, so those of us um, whose, whose first cell phones look like Navy SEAL satellite phones um, know that you can really get yourself good and lost, and therefore the words Rand McNally mean something to us. Right? Now... Um, in my pre-smartphone stage of life and marriage, my wife and I were going to this youth retreat where I was speaking, and uh, it, it was taking place in one of those parts of Oregon that is likely to secede from the Union at any given moment. And it's like one of those places where you're like, I, I don't know really where we are, and there's a good chance we might not come back out alive. And it was dark, and it was foggy, and we had this old Buick that had really defunct headlights and I thought we're going to careen off of a cliff on this unmarked road we're traveling nobody's ever going to find us and it's not good so here's the reality being lost literally means having no sense of where you are in relationship to home or your destination being lost means you have no concept of uh, where you are in relationship to the reference points of home or your destination Also, you know, it can also mean a false sense or a false confidence in where you are in relationship to those things. Anybody ever been that guy? I know where I am. Do you? And so Jesus says, 
This is what sin does to us. Sin gets us good and lost. Utterly lost. It, it makes us lost spiritually because spiritually we lose our reference point uh, and, and we lose our path home. We lose our path towards where God ultimately wants to lead us as people made in his image. Every dimension of our lives goes off track when we are lost. You, you can actually be very, very successful for all the wrong le- re- reasons and, and be very, very lost. Now this is important because it means a couple of things for us. It means that the moralist person who sees sin as just breaking God's rules has narrowed the definition of sin too far. Because lostness implies that sin is really about trying to get away from God. This category of lostness means that sin is relational. It's in the context of a relationship with a personal God. The rules are there to help us keep boundaries that honor the relationship, but you can try to get away from God by keeping all the rules just as much as you can try to get away from God by breaking them all. See, the, the novelist Flannery O'Connor, in her book Wise Blood, describes one of her main characters like this, and it's chilling. She says, Already he, this character, had a deep, wordless conviction that the best way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. What's she saying? What's, what's, what's she saying? She's saying that you can run from God in badness, and you can run from God in goodness. See, the religious person, though, just has to do it in a wordless kind of way. It's never out there. It's never spoken. And oftentimes it's even hidden from ourselves. But the point is that lostness is about trying to get away from God, get away from our need for him. And the reality of our lostness is that it defines every one of us. Jesus says, you know, you want to know what people are like? They're like sheep. I'll tell you about human nature. It's like a sheep that wanders away from soul-nourishing uh, pasture from the leadership of a shepherd. Isaiah describes the people of Israel as a test case for humanity. And he says, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. And so Jesus is picking up the Old Testament imagery of Isaiah and he's saying, this is like the kingdom of God. That, that God is a shepherd who approaches his people who are lost people. And so Jesus says, God approaches us He comes to what's lost. In both parables, in both the parable of the sheep and the coin, the lost item doesn't go looking to be found. The lost item doesn't contribute to its own foundness. It's a picture of lost sheep. And a picture of a lost sheep is a helpless sheep. It cannot make itself found. It's this dumb, rebellious sheep. That's what it is. And so it's willing to be found, but being lost means that we are helpless, friends. We, we can't do it ourselves. We can't locate ourselves. We cannot get ourselves where we need to be in order to be found. There is no app for this. It only happens when he finds you. The only thing a lost thing can do is to accept being found, which means being willing to go with the shepherd. It means willing to be picked up. One of the things that the commentators I read this week said, is, I thought this was interesting, is that a shepherd has to do something if he wants to get a sheep back. It, he has to take it down. He's got to knock it off its feet. Because when it's on its feet, it's heading the wrong direction. And so he's got to knock it down and tie up its feet and then carry it back to soul-nourishing pasture. He's got to carry it. And that's the imagery Jesus uses here. And so to be found means to allow Jesus to have a takedown in your life. Right? This is kind of this is challenging stuff. This is convicting. It, it is to me. It gets worse next week. So <laughs> To be found... It means to allow Jesus to have a takedown in your life. It means allowing him to bring you to soul-nourishing 
places where he leads you. It means giving up the right to say, I will retain the right to find my own satisfaction and fulfillment in the places I deem best and to surrender that. And so the question is, are you acknowledging your lostness today apart from him? Do, do you see it? Do you see it in the outward ways that it's obvious to others? Do you see it in the inward ways that it's hidden from others? See, will, will you open yourself to be taken down and brought with Jesus this morning? The question this morning is, do you have any places today where you need the good shepherd to take you down and carry you home? So, lostness. We need to see that. We also need to see our value. See, Jesus' way of approaching us involves seeing how utterly lost we are, but also seeing how utterly valuable we are to him. Now, I'm a father of three, which means that the theme of searching is a common theme in my household. My wife is one of the most organized people I know, which means this, that literally within weeks of even moving into a new place, she will have a designated place for every item we own, which means that there is no thing we own that doesn't have a place it's supposed to go. And so when something goes missing, we all know who the culprit is. Oh, you can't find your shoes, can you? Like I have a new phrase, which is, hey, if I find it first, what are you going to give me? Right? Because I'm like, you, I know if you can't find your shoes... It's on you. Like, I think if Jerry Seinfeld had had kids in the 90s, we all would have heard him say, like, what's the deal with the shoes? Like, I, I don't know. I, sorry, it was stupid. That's not in my notes. All right, so here's... Moving on. When a toy or a shoe goes missing, we know the culprit. In other words, though, it, it means that searching is a regular thing in our life. And when we go searching for something, we have to put other things on pause. I was enjoying this movie on Netflix. But now I will find you your pants. I don't know why you've lost your pants. They were all in a drawer, right? And it becomes all-encompassing. And you go and you focus on it. And when you focus on it, you're saying finding it is more valuable than doing other things. And then both the parables, the lost item, takes on incredible value. Incredible value. The, the shepherd leaves 99 sheep to say this one sheep is just as important as any one of my other sheep. He doesn't go, well, I've got enough. I've got 99 others, right? One sheep is not less important than the 99. And the lady drops everything to go looking for her coin. And a coin for her would have been a one day's wage at least. So she's losing a tenth of her life savings. You'd go looking for a tenth of your life savings too. And so, especially when all you've got is enough money for the next ten days. Right? So, what are you going to do? You're going to value that. And so she goes on, on a search. And she searches everywhere until she finds it. In other words, we see the value. We see the willingness to pay the price and to sacrifice for something by the search. And when Jesus is describing himself as the one who goes on the search, as God who goes on a search, he's saying, I'm willing to pay the cost of finding what is lost. Here's the deal, friends. You cannot begin, we cannot begin to realize how deeply loved and accepted we are by Jesus until you see the inestimable, inestimable value he places on you. The worth of finding you without any of your own merit is so great that Jesus himself goes to the cross to bring you and I home. The price he pays to bring you home reveals the value he places on you. Are you with me? And he does it without you earning it. 
You see, it, it isn't just that Jesus goes to the grave for us, but it's that he actually takes our place. He took on our very lostness in order to bring us to himself. Why do you think he gives up his life? It's because he's, he's taking on our sin, our lostness in all of its dimensions and its consequences, even death. He loses the sense of God's nearness. And so he cries out, why have you forsaken me? Right? He loses relational connection that defines our lostness. He becomes sin so we might become righteous. He loses his father so we could gain him. This is the value we find we have in the gospel. Other religions will say, God, God is love, he'll love you, and, and you don't need the cross for God to love you, which I think is just love in general. And love in general is really not love at all. It's only love when it's love in particular. And the cross shows us that Jesus loves us in particular. Because he's willing to take your place, not just sweep evil under the rug. And if you want to be able to love other people, if you want to live not like a moralist Pharisee, but if you want to live like Jesus towards people with grace, it won't be possible for you until he, you see how he's loved you, until you see how valued you are and that he's changed places with you. Then you can love without agreements or performance as the basis of the relationship. You can handle criticism because you've got your acceptance. You'll never be able to shake the moralist approach to God until you see his approach to you. And it's totally revolutionary. Amen? So, finally, the last thing this parable shows us is, is we have to see God's joy. Uh, you notice in both the, the shepherd parable and the coin parable... Uh, no one's there be- do- doing the search begrudgingly. You know, the-, the shepherd's not saying, you dumb sheep, how could you wander off again? And-, and the woman's not saying, you stupid coin, well, I wish you were bigger instead of so small, I could have found you easier. Right? No, what do they do? They party. They rejoice. Right? They invite the community to a party and they rejoice. I, I got to tell you, like in my household, I do not go on searches happily. Like, are you telling me I've got to find your shoe again? Like, give me something good if I find it before you. But this isn't God. God says, I go on a search for joy. God's nature, his disposition is mercy. Exodus 34 describes God's character as as a God who is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving transgression, iniquity and sin. And only when we kick off all of his mercy are we left with judgment. But his, his disposition towards sinners every time is mercy to all who will embrace it. And the the reality is, the things we rejoice over reveal what we value. The rejoicing woman and the rejoicing shepherd reveal the heart of God. See, Jesus is saying in these stories about a shepherd and a woman in search of a coin and a sheep, he's saying, this is what heaven's like. This is spiritual reality in HD. It means that the, the grumbling Pharisees aren't just grumbling about sinners, they're grumbling about God's heart and God's nature. And so for you and I, the point is this. Pay real good attention to it. That if you and I don't share God's heart for lost people, we're not just rejecting people, we're rejecting Jesus himself. And so next week, we'll look at God's celebration and how moralism refuses to rejoice. But now we have to ask ourselves, do I share God's vision of joy? Do I value what he values enough to rejoice with heaven in the things that heaven rejoices over? Or are my values backward? As we close, let me just say, what what do we do with this? Where do do you go with this sermon? Let me encourage you, wherever you are with Jesus, and I don't know where you are with Jesus, all of you, 
But I would say, first things first, get yourself inside his story. Get yourself inside his story. And some of you are more like the sheep in the coin today. And you're like, I, I'm here, I'm lost. You've tried to get away from God, and maybe you're here today because you realize it's not working for you. You realize, my soul isn't nourished. I, I, I'm, I'm dying here in my lostness. So I invite you today to see your lostness for what it is. And I, I invite you today to see your value for what it is. The, 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 the God of heaven has become like you. And he's absorbed all that you would deserve in running from him. And he's offered you life. So would you allow yourself to be found today? Maybe today's the day where you say, you know what? I need to be found by God. I need him to take me down and bring him, bring me with him. So we, you can do that right where you are. You can pray today with me and you can say, from this place of faith and trusting God, I want to be found. I see my lostness. God, I'm sorry for running. God, I embrace what you've done to bring me home. And I lean on what you've done, not what I've done, to give me favor and relationship with you. And I take your acceptance and I just want to live in relationship with you. I want to be the person at the table listening in order to obey, to be home with you. Others of you, maybe you haven't aimed to get away from God. You've found yourself drifting. You're in a place of drift and you're far from Him. There's distance spiritually for you. You've gotten lost in the muck and the mud of stress and worry or busyness or trying to keep up materially with everybody else around you and is not nourishing you and you're finding yourself to be lost again. Know today you need to be carried home by the Savior. Allow Him to bring you to the place of soul nourishment and relationship with Him. Allow the joy of heaven to reprioritize your life, to move home. Others of you today, you need to shift how you relate to people. You simply need to move towards relating to people on the basis of grace rather than agreements. You know you're there when you stop saying, yeah, that person deserves my time. When that's no longer a part of the equation, you're relating on grace. What if we were a church that as a community, we, we made dining with sinners a priority, as much of a priority as dining with other sinners. <laughs> we, we, what, if, what if we prayed this prayer? If God, would you just put in my path those who would gather to hear you? God, put in my heart an openness to relationship to those people. And God, help me to prioritize my time to reflect the dining habits of Jesus so I can be a person who reflects the kingdom. We're going to move towards communion. Uh, maybe, maybe today you prayed to be a found person. Uh, maybe today your response is simply to shift how you relate to others. I want to invite you to come to the table. Ask God's Spirit to help you respond to one of these things. To take the bread and the cup as a declaration that I find all the sufficiency of a relationship with God and what He's done and His approach to me. And I reject moralism today because if I lean on it, it will only corrupt me. But if I lean on Jesus, it will only make me whole. Let's go to the table today celebrating what He's done to find us.